we're returning once more. We're back with Looking Glass Forum. We're working hard. We have had a really busy week. It's kind of a, an important time for us to build as much as possible during this downtime, during this crazy kind of bear market and this insane downturn that we're experiencing under Biden, kind of whiplash after the, the Trump era, which was growing us out of our impossible, immeasurable debt obligations to these international banking houses from Europe, right? And the only way to pay back trillions of dollars is to grow our market and grow, grow our economy and grow the bounds of America to such a tremendous extent and to build up the wages in America, bring manufacturing back, total energy domination, right? That, that's the plan. That, that would bring back so much economic strength to America that we would have a much better position to be in in order to pay back our ballooning, catastrophic national debt that the Democrats in Washington, D.C. Are, are using our debt like a, an atomic bomb to blow us away. They're burying us alive under a million tons of economic confetti, confetti paper. So, but let's, let's not get sidetracked as I all too often do. I need to stay focused here. We have this monolithic and astronomic subject matter here. We're dealing with the, the discussion as it relates to the whole backdrop of human history at least as it relates to European and American and perhaps Canadian history, right? Because maybe people over in, in Alaska, like Inuits, who were hunting seals and, and tribesmen in South, South America who had never been contacted before, right? Or Aborigines in, in Australia. Maybe they, those people just didn't give a flying fig what the rest of us were dealing with. But so we say world history, we're talking about the predominant civilization across the world horizon in that particular history. So the history of the European development over the last several thousand years, right? And we, we're going to go from this period of imperialism and absolute imperialism that's centered in absolute Roman power after Julius Caesar seizes the throne and seizes absolute imperium within Rome, subjecting all of Rome's many slaves and senators and free men and, and peoples to his dictatorship so that no one could question him, right? So that's the breakdown of the Republic. And you can fast forward that through time. And we're going through all these many, many centuries of time. So it's, it's very in-depth. We have to go through painstaking and careful uh, discussions. And, we, and of course, to find people who will who are not, you know, graduates from Fordham University or Georgetown, who will really just give us a, a fair shake here and give us a really honest estimation and criticism of the Roman papacy. So it could be no doubt that we are, we're, this is an honest criticism and an honest contention that the system of the Roman papacy is a diabolical spiritual idolatry among many other things. And so we'll go into this discussion more. We have to present a lot of material, so I don't want to sit here and go on and on with my own pedantic opinions about all this stuff. I want to introduce a discussion here, and it really has to do with, it goes back to the heart of our issue between the conflict within modern geopolitics between Western civilization and the nation state and this new idea of a digital planetary citizen, right? Global citizenship. So, the, you know, entree into the new 15-minute smart cities in the world of having the government pay you a stipend just to live in, in the smart city and you know and have all of your information totally dominated in these the new algorithm ghettos that are they're going to develop for the future 
And I think that they're breaking down Western civilization and dissolving it in this final Hegelian dialectical process by allowing all these shiploads of invaders just to pour in unobstructed all over Sweden and Norway and Germany and England and (laughs) France and everyone is being subjected to the onslaught of foreign invaders. And if you say anything about it, they bring up the fact that you didn't like them because they had melanin in their skin or that they had a complexion like they had melanin, high melanin content pigment in their epidermis and therefore you were somehow a bad character, right? So that, that's how they deal with it. If you, if you don't like the fact that these people are not coming to, to smile and tend your garden and bless you, they've come to burn your place down and rape your daughters. And of course, you can't watch Twitter without seeing uh, awful videos of little white British or you know Swedish kids being made to squeal and scream as they're being held down and beaten by you know these these other kids who are from somewhere else, right? They're they're from somewhere else. They're, you know, there with an insidious and vile doctrine, and they're there to try to conquer society and take over the place. And of course, all this is well known. These are all the accoutrements of the Third World War. If you go back and look at the conversation between Mazzini and Albert Pike and the discussion about the Three World Wars, if you go back and look at the, the, the details about the Third World War, this is precisely what was ultimately meant to, to come about. And so it's it's not meant to be able to settle. These people are uh, people who can't ultimately be at peace with one another because their background, their pigments in their skin, their religious ideologies, their creeds, and deeply held innermost devotions are absolutely diametrically opposed. So it's just going to create societal breakdown and chaos. And it's all a part of the, the grand design as, as we're talking about here. So as we're going forward, let's talk about how important it is that European nobility, the royal families all across Europe. Uh, Queen Beatrix uh, passed the throne, I think it's the Danish throne, onto her son, who is now the king uh, of Denmark. Uh, Juan Carlos in Spain passed on the throne uh, to his son, a new king. Uh, there's a new king in, in England, King Charles, etc. So you can see that ultimately over time that the, the domination and the power structure of these ultramontane monarchies who are operating by the divine right, quote-unquote divine right of the Pope and the papacy to rule over the world and over their nations and over their cities. And if they weren't divinely coronated and chosen and selected by papal legates, then of course they would be deconstructed and taken down and destroyed, like you're seeing with the, how they do the other, the other young prince who they don't like. They, they he's made to be castigated, like Donald Trump in, in the news media and hated. He's just you know no one knows if he's hated. It just the 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 newspapers tell you that he is. So these are the royal family, by all by the gum, right? You go by the gum and the candy, and then there's all the the rags and the the inquirer, right? And the whole point of them is to, to reinstate in your mind that these are the worlds and these these ones are loved and, th- and this one's hated. Look, he's hated. So these are the ugly pictures of him. So that that's that's the propaganda of our lives. It's the ultimate simplicity and the basic simple silken thread of disinformation and lies that we're all kind of put under. And in order to get get through and break through that more, we have this interesting discussion about the nature of America's constitutional republic and the efforts over time to dissolve and break that down and destroy what the founders had built as a protection for the people and the individual against the tyranny of the government. So it's another just quick insight from Geopolitics and Empire, and they 
just they go all over the place in their discussion, but they hit some of the central topics and some of the main issues that we're dealing with now, dealing with global government and absolute technotronic tyranny, moving by the World Economic Forum and other institutions like the Club of Rome and you know just moving to displace, destabilize, and hollow out the economies of Western democracies and popular government and democratic representative government around the world. And you can see that they're doing that with different demographic invasion tidal waves and so on and so forth. So let's listen to a little bit from these fascinating world travelers. There were some positive cases where no one died. But yet mainstream media says, no, this de- this devastating is 3% mortality rate. Like, we have to watch out. So that was that was the first, first light that came on for me. Okay, something is wrong. And then uh, weeks later, John Ioannidis... Uh, epidemiologist at the uh, Stanford University came out and said to the world, no, ladies and gentlemen, nothing to worry about here. We are seeing from the latest data, we have about 0.1 to 0.2, 0. 0.1 to 0.2 infection mortality rate for whatever's going on here in line with the seasonal flu. So, okay, that, that's, that was good news. That was all good news. But media still keeps going on. No, 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 it's a global pandemic, global pandemic. And then all of a sudden, global world leaders maybe Andrew Merkel, Justin Trudeau, everyone was saying, this is the new normal until a vaccine can be developed. So that, that that's that's when I knew, okay, why, why are they saying that? Some, something's wrong. We, we've known vitamin D for over 50 years. We've known vitamin D as, as excellent at, at uh, strengthening the human body. Uh, vitamin C, uh, take your zinc, uh, exercise, eat right. You know, go go out in nature, be one with nature, with the microbiome. But no, the, the default position was immediate, all the time, constantly. Oh, this is the new normal until vaccine can develop. So that's when the light came on for me. That's when you, okay, it's, something's wrong here. So and then you start to follow the money trail. Uh, you know, we, we, as you said, we don't have uh, as much time. I, I'd probably throw in there in part of your awakening process, you know, things like 9-11 uh, and, 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 and other things. Uh, yes. But, you know. I think it's we got to look at what's happening now because this is COVID nine eleven. This is even worse. Yes. It's, it's like it part works. part two. Um, and, you know, but in January of twenty twenty, I, I did this interview that blew up with the author of the Bioweapons Act, uh, Francis Boyle, and he contended at the time that it, uh, Corona was an offensive biological warfare weapon. In my view from the beginning, I'm very close to the view of JJ Cooey and people like that. He's been a guest of mine um, uh, from the get go. I said there never was by by definition. Uh, there was never a, a pandemic um, by definition. You know, I've, I've been at the WHO during the swine flu uh, pandemic. They've changed. They, they've been committing this fraud for the long time, you know, even in 2009 with the swine flu. I mean, they changed all the definitions of pandemic. And, and now with immunity and, and vaccines, they've changed the definition of a definition. I think I, I don't know anymore, but they keep moving the goalposts. Uh, so my view that is that there's never been a pandemic that they may have used some low-yield type of bioweapon, which, as you mentioned, did not, again, uh, was not as dangerous. It was the protocols that was killing people. So they were creating this image of a pandemic. And the main goal of all of this was to bring in, bring us into this biosecurity digital technocracy. I, I do have an issue. I mean, I don't know what you believe. I, res- I respect other people's beliefs. Yeah, I'm not afraid of people who are infected with some disease, you know, like, but we don't have to be afraid of people who got the flu or something. So what, what do you think uh, uh, really happened with uh, COVID-1984? And it seems like gov- all the governments of the world participated, no? 
Yes, absolutely. They're all working in lockstep, as the Rockefeller's project would say, they were working in lockstep in synchronicity because all the government, uh, this global empire that's emerging, we have a, the, the hydra at the top. The head is the Bank of International Settlements. That, working along with the policy makers, such as Rockefeller Institute, the Club of Rome, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, which is now known as Chatham House. These are the policy makers. They work along them with the policy distributors at the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the IPCC. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that too with the, with the uh, climate change aspect to it. So that that's how then all the governments are co-opted. If, if you follow the money trail, then money makes the world go round. And the governments by various means have either been bought out or coerced, blackmailed, so that this agenda was uniformly floating around. If anything, this could have happened in 2017. In 2017, if, if we look at the World Health Organization actual data, the, the seasonal flu of 2017 had an infection mortality of between 0.7 and 0.9, far greater than, than this COVID, COVID uh, scandemic. So why weren't we in 2017 wearing masks? Why 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 weren't we uh, isolated and separated? Uh, approximately 45 million people died globally in 2017. It was devastating. I, I never heard anything about it. It began. The vast majority of these people were over the age of 70 with underlying conditions. Uh, typical of, of of again was it a virus going around with? Again, we could debate that for for hours, but we do know. There's many other elements in, in the environment. It could be arsenic that we're breathing in right now. It could be mercury that's, that's in the atmosphere that's causing us to fall ill. It could be the new 5G uh, um, technology rolling out and 6G that's coming around the corner. If, if there was some bioweapon that was designed, again, for the 2020 scenario, it's, it, it, it's nowhere near as effective as whatever happened in 2017, fortunately. fortunately. But again, by, by, by just by gaining the numbers, uh, presenting the false picture, like I said, with the cruise ship analysis, where there was really, there was no 3% infection mortality at all. But uh, when they declared a global pandemic, 40 people out of 8 billion were actually infected by this so-called, they had symptoms displaying COVID-19. 40 out of 8 billion, and we have a global pandemic. How? How is that possible, right? Yeah. And it's, you mentioned the Royal Institute. I actually had on the podcast a couple of years back uh, one of the previous directors of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, Victor Bulmer Thomas. So that, that that's an interesting interview back in, 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 in the archives. And, uh, you know, this sort of brings us towards your article, um, which I absolutely uh, loved. And, you know, we don't have to go into some of the details. I The link is in the description. And so people I urge people to go and read it and get that initial context where you detail your parents escape uh which was a life or death situation when they escaped uh yugoslavia in the, in the early yugoslavia years it was less dangerous towards the end but in the early years of yugoslavia it was life or death and they managed to escape to uh austria and then make their way to canada so uh, people should read that but i think uh, you know the, the point of that is to show back then in the soviet union yugoslavia wherever North Korea, you know, you could escape to Europe, to the United States, to Canada, to parts of Latin America. Uh, and now 
I mean, this is unprecedented. It's literally global. I've had some of my past guests on, famous uh, Swiss millionaire investor who's in Thailand, Mark Faber, when I talked about this with him a couple years back, even from a secular perspective, he said he studies deep history. He's like, this has never happened before in all of history. You know, my, my, my perspective of the Bible, you know, talks about there's going to be a global government where all countries will participate. And, you know, there's going to be like a mark of the beast system where you won't be allowed to, you know, have sovereignty or agency. You'll if you don't do what the system says, you'll be, uh, you know, uh, shut off and that's starting to happen now simultaneously these two systems of this global system and the global control system and for me that was the whole point of it as you talked about the res government response you know i was living in kazakhstan at the time and then it was like masks obligatory injections obligatory qr codes um digital passports i barely made it back to Mes mexico avoiding all of that um and so for me like that is the goal of all of this to to push us into this digital control system uh, and so your article again is, and it's very much like Patrick McGuhan's The Prisoner. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but a cult, uh, British, uh, TV classic. And so your article is moving toward a global empire, humanity sentenced to a unipolar prison and digital gulag. So if you want to tell us more about, uh, about that and what do you think, you know, what was the real purpose of, of Operation COVID? Yes, Aubrey, the, the purpose is to erode our individual freedoms, erase national uh, sovereignty. Nationalism, as I, I know nationalism and worshipping the state is, is not, a, not a good idea, but it's still, it, it's, it's moving away from the, the, the globalist agenda, from the cabal. And so it's moving away from that. Ultimately, what they, the, the cabal, what they really hate is individual freedom. That's what it's all about, destroying our inalienable rights. And, and taking away individual freedoms. So that's the ultimate goal. And how do they do that? Well, by controlling the information. If you control the information flow, the data, you you won. But but then many people say, oh, no, no, wait a second. No, no, they didn't win. For example, Russia. You know, Russia, well, they, 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 they are there, the stalwart. They are, they're fighting against the global agenda. Mr. Putin, he's on our side. No. Where's the evidence to support this? I would encourage your viewers after uh, to view, uh, go on uh, Substack to look at Rolo Slavsky's uh, Substack. It does amazing, excellent work. Um, Riley Vagaman, uh, a.k.a. Edward Slavsquat as well, been producing some excellent stuff about what's really going on in Russia. And Mr. Putin is not against the, the globalist agenda. Right? It's all working together. And it's, it's like communism on a, on, a, on a macro scale. And for example, let, let's go, draw back to what you said about Yugoslavia, okay? Yugoslavia, it's under communism or East Germany, Romania, whatever you have. They had collectivism. That was the, that was the objective of their society, to collectivize, erase the family unit, erase family values, erase any religious, organized religion that had to be destroyed. And collectivize. So now, but now we have collectivization on an international scale, which is globalization. And then when you hitch globalization to AI, to technology, to every aspect of technology where you are being monitored, uh, controlled, uh, told what to eat, where to go, what to buy, what to inject into your bodies, surveilled 24-7, that is then technocracy. So we have elements of communism in the way they collectivized and tried to erase the individual and individual freedom. So that aspect is definitely there. But when you marry that to technology, 
you have then technocracy, which Patrick Wood does, does an amazing job at explaining all that. And where do we have a prime example of that in, in today's world is China. People's Republic of China, which is really not the People's Republic. It is the Globalist Republic of China. It is a, as Patrick Wood correctly uh, uh, described it, is a full-fledged technique. If we want to see what the future could be for us, all we have to do is just look at China, where every single aspect of your life is surveilled 24-7 and monitored, where social credit ratings are in, where QR codes are there, where digital currency is being implemented, uh, where if you speak out against the government, you're immediately, you're, you're, your face is put up on the main square, you're, you're mocked, you're ridiculed, uh, you're uh, prevented from traveling, etc., etc. So all of what we've been discussing, what may be coming our way, that's, that's already there in China. And that was all enabled by the Rockefellers. When Henry Kissinger went there in 1971 to establish relations with the communist government in China, he wasn't sent there by Nixon. People have to understand, he was sent there by the Rockefellers. He was not working for President Nixon. He was working for the Rockefellers to establish this massive laboratory because here you have billions of people that you could mold and manipulate. So we're going to get into more of the details about the nature of our democratic republic here in America as a constitutional republic dedicated to the popular democracy and republican ideals that allow for every man, woman, and child, and every individual to have protected constitutional rights. And so this is the first time in history that we're going to see this kind of development. And as we said, historically, it's an extension of the Protestant Reformation as a revolution against the tyranny and the despotism of papal Rome. And so as we begin to understand this conflict and the developing work of the elites, of the, the globalist elites, and the power structure of, of Rome as it becomes to, is returns to its former state, of glory and returns again to the meridian of power. And you can see that they've been working hard, the, the order, the Jesuit order. And of course, we can't leave them out because now they, I thought it once very controversial that they had to have alone a Jesuit confessor that would hear of the Pope's sins. I thought that was very controversial. Why couldn't they have an Augustinian or somebody else, a Dominican monk, right? Why does it have to be a Jesuit priest only that can, that can sit and, and hear the conscience of the Pope at all times and shape and craft his thinking? at all times, right? But now I have a Jesuit Pope, which was once thought unthinkable, and once the, the humble and pious Jesuits would pull away from the idea that they would be enmeshed in papal controversies with a, a Jesuit a criminal Archbishop of Argentina, a Jesuit Pope. So as we go into look at the manifest traitors and manipulators here in America, the those who have fallen under the absolute influence and dictatorship of Rome. And you can see now that we have a new so-called Roman Catholic president. Once we had a, a President Kennedy who had the honesty and the wherewithal to say that he wouldn't allow his religious, personal religious views to, to direct the entire presidency. But of course, nowadays we have this profane, perfidious, perverted, pedophile Joe Biden uh, sitting over here worshiping uh, the, the Pope. So in order to go into this further, we have to look at this modern view before we get into to Europe and to the, the history of the Holy Roman Empire and the history of the, the papacy as it rose into international prominence as a, a monarch under law and as a, as a leader of a civil power, right? We can see now that Rome offers political, geopolitical, cultural, and ideological challenges to the future existence of America. 
And you can see, just like we look in history, we can see after the time when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by Roman Catholic traitors and Jesuits, and they hunted uh, the the assassins all the way down to Rome, where they, they captured one of the assassins. He was in the Joie of Guard, right? We've been through that before. We showed that the papacy was hiding one of the Lincoln assassins, and it took the Secret Service quite a long time to get him back and bring him back. And ultimately, they controlled the court system in Georgetown and in Ron Washington, D.C. so much that eventually the, the guy was acquitted, I think. So you got to understand that it was ultimately after this time when the papacy was responsible for killing Lincoln that uh, it wasn't just but a decade or so later that they would have this horrifying Jesuit doctrine of the infallibility of the papacy. And so that not only did they, in, in the time that the Pope was supposed to be having its head wound and, and, and being, you know, having its power, civil power and its monarchical throne curtailed and limited and its civil authority throughout the world diminished so that it was just, you know, a regular church bishop in Rome, just main, minding his own business, right? Of course, during that time, his agents are all around the world influencing the civil war in the United States influencing the actors who eventually would be the assassins of Abraham Lincoln and building their power and their arrogancy up even higher with this blasphemous idea of the infallibility of the Pope. What a joke. So as we go into this issue of modern times of how the, the separation between church and state is slowly being destroyed here in America and how this kind of toxic relationship exists with this supposed Roman Catholic Joe Biden, they're the Democrat side, the ex-KKK member, right? Remember, Joe Biden was surrounded by KKK members, a bird, a Senator Bird, and all that. So let's not forget that, that those are subtle ties to the knighthood orders, even if they're the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan, right? Still knighthood orders, still under the control of the Scottish rights, still men, fraternal orders who are, you know, supposedly against the papacy, but in every single possible way, you can see that they ultimately serve the ends of the Jesuit order, just like the Freemasons and the Mormons and all the rest of these initiate societies. So as we go forward here, let's just listen to this little bit, this discussion. It's a fascinating little discussion by Amazing Discoveries, and they're going to discuss this issue as it begins to evolve here in America, as the papacy begins to cross the Rubicon and cross the boundaries and begin to encroach upon the growing military government an uncontrolled expanse of America's imperialism. So we're, this is the crash and the destruction and the breakdown of our republic and the emergence of the emergency war powers commander-in-chief. And of course, you can see that Pope Francis is right there, and uh, they're more than aware of what happened when they assassinated Abraham Lincoln and left this war powers, out-of-control dictatorship running roughshod there in Washington, D.C. out of the Oval Office. Biden and the Supreme Court with Matthew Shanshay. October 2021. Catholic U.S. President Joe Biden went to visit Pope Francis at the Vatican. It was a special visit for Biden, who expressed exactly how close he holds Francis in his views. Biden, the second Catholic president in U.S. history, choked up as he spoke about his feelings about the Pope and Catholicism. I'm not sure this is appropriate, but there's a tradition in America that the president has what is called a command coin that he gives to warriors and leaders. And uh, you are 
the most significant warrior for peace I've ever met. Pope Francis has become a, uh, I don't want to exaggerate, has become someone who's provided great solace for my family when my son died. This is a man who is of great empathy. He's a man who understands that part of his uh, Christianity is to reach out and to forgive. Um, and uh, so I just find my relationship with him one that I personally take great solace in. He is a really, truly, genuine, decent man. And I meant what I said. I, this is a, someone who uh, is looking to establish uh, peace and decency and honor, not just in the Catholic Church, but just generically. There certainly would be Protestants who were part of the early founding of the United States that would see these types of statements as evidence that the Roman monarchy has successfully invaded the U.S. government. In fact, these statements act as evidence for how far removed America is from its Protestant founding, showing a rapidly growing sympathy towards Rome and marking a stark contrast from the previous and only other Roman Catholic president in U.S. history in John F. Kennedy who during his presidency had to diligently claim his stance as an American first and a Catholic second, stating in his own words that the Vatican would not influence his presidency, an issue that many mainline Protestants who knew their history were legitimately concerned with. It was the candidacy that challenged America's religious conscience. The election year was 1960. In 1960, one of the big questions is, would America elect a Catholic president? Many people were doubtful whether Kennedy, regardless of how charismatic he was or how good he was in terms of his policies, could win. Anti-Catholicism was extremely strong in this period in American history. And there was a sense that Catholics are different, uh, that they couldn't be trusted in positions of power. And there was all kinds of rumors, always, that Kennedy would really rule through the Vatican. That was the argument a lot of anti-Catholics would make. Yeah. The question is whether I think that uh, if I were elected president, I would be divided between two loyalties, my church and my state. He says that uh, he will not accept the dictates of the pope uh, as president, that he will be his own president, that his religion will not dictate uh, his public policy. He just says, uh, I am a Catholic, but I will not govern as a Catholic. I believe in an America where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly, upon the general populace. But why is a president's religion of any concern? Consider this passage on JFK from History.com. In the late 1950s, Catholic politicians were viewed with an open suspicion by many mainline Protestants and evangelicals. Sean Casey, director of the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs at Georgetown University, and author of the making of a Catholic president, says that Catholic candidates were accused of having, quote, dual loyalties to both the Vatican and the United States. The argument was when push came to shove, a president who is Roman Catholic would ultimately be more loyal to the Vatican because the fate of his eternal soul was at stake, says Casey. Although this quote was given by a director at one of the most prestigious Jesuit universities in the United States, the point he shares is valid to this very day. When dealing with practicing Catholic politicians and leaders, there is always one key question. Where do their first loyalties lie? 
to their country, or to their pope. As the Bible says, one cannot serve two masters. You see, most Protestants at the time of JFK still understood, to some degree, the true character of the papacy and its long persecuting history. But there's another major challenge in having Catholics hold high positions of power and authority in foreign governments. Unlike other religions, the head of the Catholic Church is also the king of a civil monarchy. And not just a king, but a king that claims complete and total temporal authority over all governments on earth. And a king that claims to be God's one true representative here on earth, holding the keys to death and hell and heaven and eternal life. In his address, the Pope explained the Roman doctrine that none could enter the fold of Christ except under pontifical guidance. Even claiming to forgive sins, a power that only Jesus Christ alone has. It's these types of claims that helps qualify the seat of the Pope and the one who holds it at the time as the man of sin, the son of perdition, or 666 the number of a man. This is an important point that most who claim that it's the Jewish Kabbalists who are secretly running the hierarchy of the world. Ask them, who then is the man of sin? You see, they have it backwards. The secret societies, Kabbalists, Gnostics, and other man-is-God sun-worshipping cults have been infiltrated by papal ideologies through Jesuitism and other papal orders, not the other way around. Nor do these groups of individuals that operate in the background, unseen to the common eye, fit any of the classifications or definitions of the final end-time power as described by the Bible, where it states in Revelation 13 that two visible civil and religious powers will cause the whole world to worship the dragon, which the Bible defines as Satan himself. So when the second Catholic president in U.S. history talks about the Pope in such a way as Biden does, it should raise prophetic alarm bells for anyone who understands Bible prophecy and are actively watching America and the Vatican develop the closest relationship they've had in history. For just the second time in U.S. history, a Roman Catholic president arrived at the Vatican for a meeting with his church's leader. But Friday's meeting is unlike any before between a Pope and a president. More of a reunion between two men who over the past decade have developed a close, personal, and even political bond. Where JFK was careful to establish independence from Rome, Biden has not shielded from highlighting how his faith has shaped his career, nor from the relationship he's developed with Francis, grounded in shared faith and philosophy and deepened through multiple face-to-face meetings. Now, they meet for the first time as peers and fellow heads of state, with an agenda that is expected to include climate, poverty, and the global response to COVID-19. So here we are, just over one year into this Biden presidency. It's time to take a look at how things are aligning prophetically. Welcome to the Amazing Discoveries Prophecy Report, where we review current news and events and their connection to Bible prophecy. I think all of us who have interest in Bible prophecy want to know exactly where we are in the stream of time. So many headlines and crises that claim links to Bible prophecy, the Ukrainian-Russian war, fear of communist China's future as a predominant global power, or some other foreign threat, 
But let's be clear, there are only two powers the Bible instructs us to focus on for this day and age. And these two powers are playing out the exact roles the Bible predicted. Consider this passage from the book, The Great Controversy. Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former lays the foundation of spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. The Protestants of the United States will be the foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hands of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp the hands with the Roman power. And under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome and trampling on the rights of the conscience. The 13th chapter of Revelation is incredibly important for understanding who's really behind these two powers. It is the dragon, or as Revelation 12 and 20 identifies, Satan, that old serpent, the devil, who is behind these beasts, also defined as kingdoms. It is describing the setting up of the dragon's final false worship system, which involves both civil and religious components. But ultimately, the whole purpose is to implant false worship into the hearts and minds of each individual by free will or by force. If all this is true, we should see the evidence of a major papal influence within the American political system, helping the papacy shape the policies and mindsets of the American government, leading America to create what the Bible calls an image of the beast. And when this image is fully formed, it will be just a reflection of the old papal social and religious system of the Dark Ages, and will lead to national ruin. But what is this image exactly? When the state shall use its power to enforce the decrees and sustain the institutions of the church, then will Protestant America have formed an image to the papacy, and there will be a national apostasy which will end only in national ruin. But that's impossible, right? That couldn't happen again? As the Bible says, there is no new thing under the sun. If Roman Catholic principles are really going to come under care and protection of the state, how could this be accomplished? A good place to start might be to stack the U.S. legislative and judicial systems with those who believe in and practice Catholic social teachings, which today are showing up in the forms of social justice, climate change, and worker rights movements. Make no mistake, these are all based on a papal agenda to bring the world together, unified under one system, in preparation for something much, much bigger. But to illustrate this point, let's look at just one part of the judicial system, but maybe the most important part when it comes to interpreting and shaping the law of the land, the Supreme Court. When you look at the makeup of this group, what does the real world data show? First, it shows that the individuals that make up this high court are all very religious. There are no atheists on the Supreme Court, although separation of church and state is a critical principle in American law, the nation's most powerful justices all identify as religious. What is the religious makeup of the court? In terms of religious demographics, 
27% of the country has 100% representation on the Supreme Court, with seven of nine judges identifying as Roman Catholic. The 50% of the country who identify as Protestant have, up until a couple of weeks ago, precisely zero representation. Roman Catholics make up roughly 23% of the U.S. population, yet make up 78% of the Supreme Court seats. And up until the most recent appointment of Jackson, who claims to be a Protestant, but has no record to show of any protest of Rome, zero Protestants have sat on the Supreme Court despite making up almost 50% of the U.S. population. Does that math make sense to anyone? Since the confirmation of David Sutter, an Episcopalian, which as a faith self-identifies as, quote, Protestant yet Catholic, in 1990, no new justice raised as a Protestant has been chosen for one of the most exclusive professional clubs in the nation. To review the original question of what the real-world data shows in regards to the nation's highest court, it shows that the makeup of this supposedly fair and balanced group of nine judges is disproportionately overflowing with devout practicing Roman Catholics, all of whom have, by their own words, shown to align with and uphold Catholic social teachings as the proper worldview. While all have stated during their nomination hearings that their personal religious viewpoints would not influence their rulings, the truth is, it's impossible for an individual to completely separate themselves from their own personal beliefs, which is why worldview diversity would be essential in creating a truly fair and balanced Supreme Court. Yet, when we learn of the backgrounds of each of the current judges and just how devoutly Catholic they really are, a clear trajectory and outcome for America's future is revealed. There may be some that cite at this stage that the Constitution says there shall be no religious test for any position in government, and that what we're pointing to here would be a violation of that concept. An article from the Huffington Post adequately relates handling this within the context of the current makeup of the Supreme Court. Even bringing such questions up about the lack of religious diversity on the Supreme Court is a delicate matter. The United States Constitution states quite plainly that no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. Even if Article 6, Paragraph 3 didn't exist, it brings into question the concept of affirmative action and the concept of quotas, all of which have their own long history, pro and con, in America. So allow me to state from the beginning that I'm not advocating religious quotas for the Supreme Court in any way. I don't think we should revert to the days where people only spoke of there being a, quote, Jewish seat or a, quote, Catholic seat on the Supreme Court. But I still have to wonder, with all the top-notch lawyers in the country, why the current court has such a stunning lack of diversity in the religious realm. I propose no concrete solutions, though I merely raise the question. We are always able, as free-thinking individuals allowed to consider if the representatives of the people constitute a fair and balanced perspective that considers each individual equally. The basis of the no religious test concept is a good one, but has been manipulated to show a heavy bias towards one worldview. And it's a worldview that just happens to have a history of being the biggest enemy of individual liberties and rights, especially those rights of religious liberty and liberty of conscience or the freedom to think and choose what you believe. 
There's a distinct difference between that principle of no religious test cited in the Constitution and the core issue of having Roman Catholics in high positions of power within governments outside of Vatican City. All of it stems from the Roman Catholic Church's own claims, which when fully understood makes it unlike any other church on the planet, and thus makes it subject to a different consideration when the no religious test article is considered in the Constitution. As with all laws, context must be considered. And what is the context for the true nature of the Roman Catholic Church? As we'll see, it extends far beyond that of just a church. The Roman Catholic Church claims to be not only endowed with spiritual power, but with temporal power, with the right to rule over all the nations of the earth, a super government. And let me say right here, that I do not intend to discuss the dogmas or tenets of the Roman Catholic Church. That church has a perfect right to teach and preach all the dogmas they choose, and its adherents have the right to believe and practice such beliefs, however foolish and absurd they may seem to us. They are entitled to their beliefs, and in the exercise of them to the protection of the Constitution and laws of this free commonwealth. But when the church goes a great step further, and claims that it is a nation with all the sovereign attributes of a nation and can interfere with and annul our constitutions and laws and can destroy our free institutions, then, as an American citizen, I have a right to protest against such usurpation of power by an alien sovereignty. This is the issue. The Vatican is not just a church. It is a country with a pope as a king of that country and supreme pontiff or king of his church. This quote was taken directly from the book Romanism as a World Power, written in 1921, and is something everyone should read if they want to understand the true nature of the Roman Catholic Church and how it's impacting America right now. It is that institution that is the key to leading this country, as the Bible says, to eventually create an image of the beast. The early and mid-America eras fully understood the issues with having papal loyalists in high positions of power, a perspective that has been almost entirely lost in the modern world of today. But what was the basis for their concerns? Let's consider this statement made in Bronson's review in 1858. The church is a kingdom and a power and as such must have a supreme chief, the Pope. And this authority is to be exercised over states as well as individuals. If the Pope directed the Roman Catholics of this country to overthrow the Constitution and put down the American flag, sell the nationality of the country, and annex it as a dependent province, they would be bound to obey. It is the intention of the Pope to possess this country. And what does the Roman Catholic Church have to say? Let's hear from the Archbishop of Wisconsin, where he wrote on April 8, 1921, that American Catholics should understand clearly the teachings of their faith, namely that the Church is not a republic or democracy, but a monarchy, that all her, the Church's authority, is from above and rests in her hierarchy. Such is the essential constitution of the Church given her by Jesus Christ who placed all the powers and rights of government in his visible kingdom on earth 
both in things temporal and things spiritual, exclusively into her visual rulers, the bishops. Protestant judge Honorable Gilbert O. Nations, in his book Papal Sovereignty on page 181, writes on this issue, So long as the sovereign pontiff claims and exercises temporal jurisdiction and participates in the diplomacy and politics of the world, his subjects are bound by the same condition that binds the subjects of other monarchs. No Roman Catholic, while retaining membership in the Papal Empire, which is identical with the Roman Catholic Church, is entitled to citizenship under any civil government. While we are not advocating for the extreme nature of this viewpoint, it does represent how Protestants have historically understood the dangers of papal loyalists in high government positions. In Eliot's Delineation of Romanism, page 596, it further states the Roman Catholic position in regards to the powers of the Pope. Thomas Aquinas from 1595, the Pope, by divine right, hath spiritual and temporal power as supreme king of the world. He can impose taxes on all Christians and destroy towns and cities for the preservations of Christianity. The Pope is a king of a foreign civil monarchy. And like any king, he expects first loyalty from his subjects. But it goes well beyond that. This particular king claims authority over all governments on earth claiming to be able to forgive sins on the religious side, and then claiming to be able to annul constitutions and laws on the civil side, all based on his self-appointed divine right by God. And no, this right was not given to him by Jesus or his apostle Peter. It is fair to think how the citizens of the United States would react if, say, Russia, China, or North Korea had individuals who, through a profession of faith, claimed first allegiance to one of these foreign powers but in turn stated to be a neutral and impartial judge on the Supreme Court, or sat in the seat of the presidency itself, and it's not just America. Take a look at Canada, Mexico, Italy, the United Kingdom, and France, and many others, all led by baptized Catholics. If a person truly looked at the extent of Rome's hand in history, it seems almost anyone reviewing the information objectively would call what is happening here a covert usurpation of sovereignty by a foreign power. But today, it's apparently called democracy. In light of the warnings we looked at earlier, that Roman Catholic principles will come under care and protection of the state, let's think about this for a minute. At the highest judicial level right now in 2022, the influence of those who agree with and seek to uphold Roman Catholic social and religious views are seven out of nine Supreme Court justice seats. Although some will say six, it is seven with Neil Gorsuch, whose affiliation is listed as Anglican Catholic. The current makeup of the Supreme Court, in addition to the presidency, marks one of the most dramatic and remarkable shifts in American culture when considering the Protestant foundings of the United States. An article from Quartz offers a review of this shift U.S. Supreme Court justices are secular clerics of the highest order, the Constitution their guiding document, a set of basic commandments, and textual analysis is their practice used to dissect thorny moral issues. All share reverence for the law. It would be impossible to get the gig without a religious devotion to its rule. There is no religious test for Supreme Court justices, nor any requirement that the bench represent the makeup of the nation. 
Yet it is notable that the court has gone from all Protestant origins to now mostly Catholic. It may also be indicative of a takeover of the nation's most powerful institutions. Since the court's inception of 1789, there have been 91 Protestant judges named out of 113 total justices. When the High Court was established, justices were chosen from the ranks of the Founding Fathers, who were overwhelmingly Protestant. Of these, 33 have been Episcopalian. The Episcopalian Church calls itself, quote, Protestant yet Catholic. In other words, it's a kind of new Catholicism, informed by Martin Luther's Reformation. For the first 180 years of the Supreme Court, Protestant justices were overwhelmingly dominant. Catholics were few. The first appointment was in 1836, and there were no Jews until 1916. It's notable that the only Chief Justice with a Catholic background is Roberts, showing how recent this shift has been. Argued that this is a natural progression of selection that accounts for the lack of Catholics in prior eras. But the reality is, the evidence is heavily in support of this being an intentional effort, handled mainly by Jesuit influence, to instill the right people in the right positions, to bring about the needed changes, leading America to fulfill its prophetic role to make an image of the beast. And while that hasn't happened yet, through the shaping of the Supreme Court, the presidency, and in the highest levels of American industry, we see the evidence that the forming of this image is in process and according to Bible prophecy, is an inevitability. But this is just scratching the surface. The more we look, the stranger things get. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss the next episode, where we take a deep dive into the backgrounds of each Supreme Court justice, and you're going to want to hear what we found. So, you know, there's some very narrow and really immeasurable and rather meaningless Distinctions of eschatology there that we could we could make we could quibble over some of the the uh, small nuances and facts, but the truth is that's the general picture. And of course, if you go to the various groups of the uh, Protestant, the remnants of the Protestant Reformation, which is a reemergence and a reawakening, a, a revival, a great awakening of the Christian Church as it had been persecuted and ground down, and armies marshaled against it and inquisitional flames, dungeons, the medieval, the dark ages itself, grinding down the, the individual man, the serf class commoner, right? So the scriptures and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the actual story of the salvation message of Jesus Christ is so suppressed, so buried under the repression of the Roman papacy that it bursts forth in the Protestant Reformation and the world sees a great light. In the darkness, right? You, and so ultimately, the bringing forth of the gospel once again into the public domain where it had been just quenched down to just very tiny sects at the, at the peripheral who may have retained some of the information. But it was ultimately certain scholars and certain individuals that were led by the Lord that brought forth, like, like we said, the reawakening of the gospel again. And so now you can see that we're in the later times. The Republic of America's constitutional democratic system so that our democracy is split up over a republic so that all the different areas are equally represented. So that whole concept of checks and balances and constitutional enumerated powers that could be limited 
that whole structure is gone. So that the Republic is decimated and in its place, you have to just open your eyes and witness that we're an imperial system and the empire uh, the imperial state up there in Washington, D.C. is trying to get na- uh, statehood and trying to elevate itself to total geopolitical power. And you can see that it no longer listens to the people. It just crushes the people. It sends out its Gestapo FBI to you know, monitor uses its intelligence agencies to hunt the people and to red flag us and just prepare the checklists, the red and blue lists. That's what it, we, we understood back in the back in the day when... The internet was just a nascent, blipping, buzzing, and rather dull instrument. But today we have these very fine machines running very fast. The the technological landscape has changed to such an extent now that the world can be ruled as a universal serfdom. And so the people here in the United States are just users on, on the phones, on the devices. We're just, But ultimately, the idea of national boundaries is becoming no more because the same companies, uh, Sony and Apple, et cetera, et cetera, Microsoft will ultimately just serve customers across any border in Mexico or Canada or, you know, anywhere. And we're all becoming universal users so that the technology doesn't recognize any borders or boundaries or any really languages. You're just all consumers now. And it's all about the digital currency. So as we're going forward, it's important for us to recognize where we're at and how pitch the battle has become and how crucial it is for you to remember your history. Because if you don't understand the nature of this religious conflict, this religio-cultic supremacy of a foreign monarch over American democracy, then you will not understand, especially if you're celebrating it religiously. You're actually going around and putting up the wreaths and the Christmas lights. You're just going whole hog into it. You have no idea what what it is the subtle propaganda is that you're imbibing what it means or where it's coming from, where it's going, or, you know, what the big play is here historically. You're really just a happy, slappy, ignorant kind of partaker in all the things going on around you, but you you have no, that's what they mean by a cult, because you're not initiated yet. You don't have any full understanding of what's really taking place around you. You're just witnessing it and taking it for face value for granted. But ultimately, this whole idea of a religious intonations of Romanism across our culture are about imperial hegemonic control and cultural supremacy over our society. So when we were kids, we were totally inundated with it. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough, you know, so that these young people are being, the same tools are being used against them today. So when we were kids, it was all just about the Roman calendar. So every single uh, period of time, every few weeks, we would have another period where it was St. Patrick's Day and we would have um, you know, do something for St. Patrick's Day. It's wonderful. And then we would have St. Valentine's Day and everyone would do candy and we'd do the hearts. St. Valentine's so wonderful. And then it would be Easter. It's time for Easter egg bunnies. We kind of keep it kind of like secular and, 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 you know, keep the hermeneutic kind of Gnostic and pagan. So you have the Easter eggs and the Easter egg bunnies and the candy. And then you go on down the line. So it, and it came to Christmas time. Oh my God, off Christmas time, we got three or four weeks off of school. It was like a huge pageant in the whole school was filled with Christmas imagery and lights. And oh, and they would stay up for, for days and weeks after. It just, oh, what, a, what an orgy and festivities and wonderful Roman Catholic traditions, right? And so that was the whole implementation of public school system would just give you over to the outer exoteric meeting, to the, the, the surface celebrations and festivities and and praxis for the children right so it's always the little kids on santa's knee so that, that, that's how the propaganda went so that's how we are 
today you see the same instruments of inculcation and brainwash that are you know running ultimately our, our societies and our, our schools under these Marxian extreme left principles. You're seeing that the same instruments that were used to shape our minds as kids are now being used to shape the minds in this perverted transgender LGBTQ uh, movement. The whole deforming the children with this perverse sexualization and trying to really molest the kids ideologically in their imagination with school children books with pornography in it. I mean, you see what I'm saying? So it's it, that's the, that now that is what the instrumentality of the public school system is going to be used to produce. So you can see that they're bringing forth an army of deranged and perverse and debased Marxist psychopaths that will be pumped out and churned out of the school system in order to bring a, a final end, a final degenerational end to America and the extent that these people will not be able to reproduce. They won't be able to, you know, have sex in the proper counterpart with the, the proper orifice in order to actually procreate, right? They, they'll, they'll do everything. They'll, they'll copulate with every orifice there is, but not the one where it creates a baby, right? So that, that'll be the entire over-focus of the, the teaching that they'll receive in school, you know, is how to abort the babies they do have, right? And so there's always these weird defunct, you know, the weird hippie camps turned into transgender women with beards who got pregnant by the, the gay guy or, you know, it, it's a, it's just bizarre. It's bizarre what we're witnessing. I, I mean, I can't really, I feel so horrible. These people are so twisted and deranged and they live in this psychosphere of puke film that just overtakes their minds as they just have fallen so far from humanity. Um, that I cherish the days of our youth when we had the BMX bikes and we would uh, throw the poppers and you know, the little firecracker poppers at each other's feet and we would, you know, have Ninja Turtles and just normal stuff, right? So today you can see the future is being prepared for a period of destabilization and horrifying world wars and civil conflagration in flames, the, the total deconstruction and devastation of all nation states, you know, that, and to, to become a ruinous heap. So you, there, there won't be anything left standing. I think that's what you're seeing. And so the, the floodgates are let open. You have the, the carefully planned Marxist crime wave going across the country. So every shopping mall, every little fashion outlet, everywhere, every little jewelry store can expect suddenly to be hit with a flash mob of criminals who come in and take millions of dollars worth of your merchandise to run off and without you being able to do anything about it. You know, you can just get some likes on social media, I guess. So let's carry on. We're doing the, the, the work here of helping us to place historically and classically the true nature of the wolf and sheep's clothing up there in the Vatican. So now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And as you know, our sponsor is courageously helping us to keep our show going here. So it's Wendy'sLimited.com. Wendy'sLimited.com. So Wendy'sLimited.com. Wendy'sLimited.com has all the hottest new styles and couture trends and latest boutique women's apparel and shoes and heels and flats and all kinds of just wonderful stuff. You have hives and honey uh, jewelry armoire. It's been a favorite lately. And we have, of course, Windsor crystal uh, lamps. 
have one uh, one in stock in particular that has been a favorite. So Wendy'sLimit.com is always open to help you get everything you need. Awesome Prada purse that we uh, saw that, that uh, Wendy's Limited just put up. So we have to think who out there wants to get incredible Prada. Fashion Couture. You know that um, from what I hear, they're a favorite of many, many ladies out there, many women all over the place. In fact, I think you cannot find a single family member or wife or sister or aunt or grandmother or loved one or girlfriend or what have you that uh, does not love Prada purses. So if you want to be totally awesome, you have to eventually come to grips with wendyslimited.com. Wendy's Boutique Limited has all the hottest new styles and latest women's apparel, everything you need to be totally awesome. If you're a woman or if you have a, a woman who's someone that you love, and of course we all love women because they're just so awesome. That's why Wendy'sLimited.com is so successful. So go check out Wendy's Boutique. Wendy'sLimited.com is the only place to go. And we have to recommend she's been totally 100% awesome to us and generous so we are always going to be buying our jewelry fine jewelry gold gold and silver jewelry and all of our best boutique couture and designer trends are we're going to go to wendyslimited.com so check out wendy's boutique limited So as we turn now and pivot, we are adjusting our of our particular insight here as we go forward. And we can see now that there are different point of views as we go forward and we look at the different figures of prophecy within Revelation, the book of Revelation. And some of those different ideas are of little use to many people here in the modern world because they, you know, they're on their Apple iPhone and you know they got to check their TikTok and you know they just all the different interpretations of the prophetic archetypes of the book of Revelation and other prophecies, et cetera, just, you know, a little use to people. And, and I get that, but there is a breakdown there of really being able to very clearly identify the image and the personality and the illustration of the Antichrist figure, you know, looking at the colors and the marks of the opulence and gold and the supremacy over dominions and kings and the, the killing of the saints because of course the Antichrist was given power to make war against the saints and to utterly persecute and kill them and of course you saw that happen under the Caesars and then on, under the, the popes and of course that's prophesied to happen again so as we kind of hone in on this we're like going through different things and we have you know very little time and we're compressing all this information into these small you know minute little time slots best ultimately point out to you that this is a clarification and an identification of the the figure of the antichrist as the beast within revelation but this is also the second figure the second beast of revelation that comes up and is and, and it forms an image to the first beast, right? So there's a second figure, this false prophet imagery. And of course, some people like to pour into the United States, and you'll see that as the old kind of 19th century erudition and, and 
prophetic scholarship within the the Bible teaching seminaries. You know, they looked at the the rise of the United States as an imperial power from a republic, and having a huge capital building that looks like a freaking St. Peter's Square, right, with the big dome. It just looks like a super Vatican building, right? So it does have the imagery of Rome. So, you know, of course, I cannot deny that, and I won't say that that's incorrect, because, of course, America is far from the constitutional system of balanced legislation and justice for all and, and the bounds of enumerated constitutional limits that exist that the, the, the government had to follow. Of course, they're well beyond all that. So this isn't Thomas Jefferson's uh, Federalist Papers over here. Right, where the Washington system has become, it's, it's even incorporated into its own inner secret district of Columbia, you know, city-state structure like London and, and the Vatican. So those are all in alignment to me and, my, and from my point of view, in my opinion. And so it turns out that as things are going forward, that you can see that Biden and all these other figures uh, that are really acolytes and sycophants of, of Pope Francis, who's you know kind of really grown into this figure of being a, a hunted outlaw on the run for his war crimes in Argentina to really kind of take in the place of really feeling, you know, sowing his oats and really feeling empowered as the Pope. Like he really feels like he's going to come down on world leaders and he's going to sit in the chair of St. Peter and hold the keys and he's really going to be the man, right? So you can see that that really that seat and that that power that megalomania really of the antichrist system really just lures the unsuspecting and ultimately the, the profane and the arrogant uh, constituents of the college of cardinals around the papacy realize that, that they're potentially going to be selected next right so it's a chase for the destruction of men's souls right there as they cling on to this hope of immortal power as the uh, the vicar of christ on earth and you know so on and so forth. And in my, in my lifetime, the only time we ever have a decent religious, uh, maybe even man saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ who sat in the papal chair was John Paul I. And of course, they murdered him in 33 days. He was a smiling pope. No one talks about him. They just covered him up with John Paul II. And they were not going to have any kind of reforming pope come in and look at the Vatican Bank, right? That was all having to do with the P2 Lodge and the Vatican Bank scandal, and the stay-behind networks of the Operation Gladio. But we have to uh, take our time to slowly unwind and break down systematically all these parts of history which are just blown apart. And there's no college course for this. There's no newspaper that'll, or journalist or news outlet that'll explain all this to you. You have to go and find it, the fragments of it, and put it all together yourself. So and that's what we're doing here for you today. So as we go forward, we just well, I want to look at the explication here of Richard Bennett, who is so fascinating because he understands, that, you know, he agrees with me in my opinion that the the second beast with the horns, right? Those two horns, and this goes all all into the we, we nerd out on the prophetic revelation and the prophetic symbols and all that, what it all means. So we feel like we can easily identify the Antichrist figure, but this other figure, the second figure, who in many cases is a system of imperial power in the, in the United States, but also this figure of the false prophet, in my mind, is the system of Islam itself. And in many cases, you can see that Islam is comes out of the Middle East. But here in the West, we have our own form of Islam, which is an offshoot, an esoteric development of a 
Freemasonic branch of Mormonism, right? LDS. And so ultimately that was uh, started, started by Brigham Young and Joseph Smith, and they were ultimately the the high-level Freemasons, right? <laughs> and, and they were directed by Pierre de Smith, and he was a Jesuit. And, of course, you can see that Pierre de Smith has a special statue in the halls of the Mormon temple over there. And uh, you can see that, the, that ultimately they have a prophet and they have a system of kind of extra-biblical, apocryphal, gospel, the uh, the Book of Mormon that talks about how Jesus came and judged the Indian tribes in America. And all. It's, it's, so it's this kind of like Gnostic gospels. And there it has these elements of racism built into it because the white people were holy and and pure and the black people and their dark skin were evil and, you know, barbarian and sinful. And so there was a kind of like the 18th century, the 1820s, 1830s, kind of like racial theories of Freemason boys kind of like programmed into the subtext and the philosophical substructure of their whole doctrine and their their immutable books of Mormon that they they really can't get rid of. And they have a book called the book of ether. And it's just, you know, you know, we've gone into that before if you follow this program. So, but the point is, is that there is a secondary system of Islam here in the, in the United States that seems to mirror the original Arabic Persian system following Muhammad. So this is another system of kind of, it has the same exact identical structure, but it follows the, 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 uh, the prophet Brigham Young, right? The prophet Joseph Smith. So it's, it's kind of strange, but to kind of put that in there, but I think it's going to affect us here in America more than we realize as we go forward because they uh, these individuals, um, bless their hearts, um, occupy positions of central power and, you know, and uh, at high levels in our government. And of course, the, the Romneys have been desperately frothing at the mouth for, for decades to get in the presidency. So God, God help us there. If that ever happens, because if you, if you understand anything about Mormon history, we'll go more into it. There's been times when they were up in the uh, Meadow Mountain ma- Massacre, Meadow Mountain Passage Massacre. I have to go back into it, but they, I think some of the um, the Protestants, the Baptists, and the, uh, the Lutherans up there were slaughtered on the wagon trail by the Mormons. But as we go forward, let's just listen to Richard Bennett. Okay, he's going to explain to us his point of view. He was a, a Roman Catholic a priest for 22 years before he actually heard the gospel for the first time. So his point of view is important for this discussion. And they say in Surah 5 and 33, the punishment of those who wage war against Allah and his people and strive to make mischief in the land is only this, that they should be murdered or crucified and their hands and their feet should be cut off on opposite sides, or they should be imprisoned. This shall be a disgrace for them in this world, and in the hereafter they shall have grievous chastisement. And Surah 8.39, they who believe in, they who believe fight in the way of Allah. This is totally different than the word of the Lord and the word of the sacred scriptures in the Bible. Christ Jesus said, love your enemies. 
do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward will be great, and you shall be children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father in heaven is merciful. How totally different is the religion of Christ Jesus, his word, and the atrocities that are depicted in the Quran. Now, we have to see that the Roman Church that now espouses Islam did not always do so. She has shown herself again as true history to be a chameleon, one who can change completely her colors. And this is a typical example of Rome having a complete turnaround in face. The Catholic Church that now supports and wants to have an external unity with Islam is the same Catholic Church that for 200 years waged war against Islam and for 600 years condemned her. In the year 1095, Pope Urban II called for a war of the cross, a crusade, to retake the lands from the infidel Muslim Turk. And we have recorded his exact words that I read to you. All who die by the way, whether by land or sea, in a battle against the pagans, shall have an immediate remission of sins. This I grant them through the power of God with which I am invested. You'll see exactly where I get that quote in the footnotes as you get this uh, article on our web page. But this is an example of Urban II calling the Islam pagans as he set out in war against them. We had from Urban II a whole list of popes through the 12th and 13th centuries ending up with the horrendous Innocent III in condemning the Muslims and leading crusades and wars against them. Now, if what the present Pope says is true, that they have the same faith of Islam as does the Church of Rome and the same God, well, then all this line of popes, including the notorious Innocent III, are damnable heretics. That's how the Roman Church is in her decrees. And it is she who says that our teachings are irreformable, that's an exact quotation, and that they say that their popes are infallible. And so we have the turnabout that the Church of Rome has made. We have the Pope as the head of a totalitarian regime. He has his bank, he has his ambassadors, he has his court, he has ambassadors 
in all nations, including the Muslim nations. He has his detective force. He has his secret service. He is like any secular leader, only more. He has more territory than any other secular leader, including here in the United States. He has more physical domain. And with this physical domain, he has spiritual power that reaches across planet Earth. We have here a system that is well-organized and that has totalitarian ruler at his head. And he has declared officially that the Holy See is judged by no one. And he has declared officially, quotation, that it is solely the right of the Roman pontiff to judge those who hold highest civil office in a state. He holds to himself the right to civilly judge the leaders of the world. He is the one who calls himself the most holy, most holy, I beg your pardon, is one of his official titles, and the most holy pontiff. He fits the exact description that the Apostle Paul said, who exalts himself sitting in the temple of God, calling himself God, calling himself most holy. We have here the system of Rome depicted before us. And we have evangelicals in our day saying that this system is our brothers and sisters in Christ. Famous men and women and famous leaders in the present day world. And if these leaders persist, they are denying the biblical gospel and the biblical history that we have inherited. And they are divorcing themselves from great men of history such as Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, Tyndale, Calvin, Cranmer, Latimer, Ridley, Bradcoff, White, Bunyan, Newton, Edwards, Wycliffe, Wesley, Spurgeon, Weil, and such as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. They are divorcing themselves from the great leaders that we have had in history. They're showing their ignorance, both of history and of Scripture. And they are putting themselves into the claws of the one who desires to draw all to her bosom. This Pope, who stands not only admiring and upholding Islam, but also the Hindus, the Zoroastrians, and Native Americans, the Shamas, the cultists, and the animists, as he did at Sisi, and he has done officially, and he's declared, we will stand side by side asking God to give us peace. This is the same Pope who has in the Philippines and in Mexico condemned evangelical Protestant faith. This is the one whom J.I. Packer, Chuck Colson, Bill Bright, Mark Knowles, Pat Robertson, Os Guinness, Richard Land, Timothy George, and T.M. Moore have endorsed in Evangelicals and Catholics together, 1994 and 1997. We have reached a real turning point in history. 
It is my appeal to you that you make a stand for those listening and those watching on television. I would ask that you make your voice heard. There are a multitude of talk radios here in the United States and across the world. Would to God that you as a believer and others as believers would get up and call these radio stations and speak the things that we're speaking about tonight, about the horrors that are before us and how horrendous is Islam and the Roman Church that is embracing her and that you would give the true gospel. There's opportunity not only on radio but also on television and there's opportunity through the BBC that is now online at bbc.com worldwide and talking point every day and especially on Saturdays where you can fax, email or uh, make a free phone call to the BBC and they will make your voice heard across the world. We have talking point and would to God that we as Bible believers would make the word of the Lord heard as we face this day. And it is for us as Bible believers to show what our agenda is and to show who she is. The word of God resounds. We are seen and Rome is seen for what she truly is. We know her by her throne on which she sits. We know her by our colors, scarlet and purple. We know her by her name blazoned on her forehead, Babylon mystery religion. We know her by her immoralities. And it's not just at the present day, but the immoralities of the priesthood throughout history and of her courts and of her delegates, of her ambassadors. We know her by our foul deeds and by our political lovers not only at the present day, but throughout history. Her name is engraven on the pages of Scripture. Babylon mystery religion. There is none other that fits the graphic picture of who she is, down to the cup that she holds and the colors that she has. We know her in the pages of Scripture, and it is for us to proclaim who she really is the whore of Babylon, the Antichrist system, for us to proclaim who she is. We have evangelicals joining together with her, and we have a massive system that has all the theatrics of Hollywood and all the grandeur of Madison Avenue to give their program. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And it is for us at this moment of our history to make a stand for biblical truth and so that the word of God reverberates not simply on the pages of scripture but in the men and women who live at this critical moment of history. The scripture says, come out of her my people and be not partakers of her sin, and receive not of her place. 
And we say that to precious Catholics who are enslaved within her, just as the Muslims are enslaved inside Islam. Come out from her, my people, so that you do not share her plagues. For the word of God also warns, quotation, Hearken unto me, therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Do not incline your heart unto her ways. Do not go astray in her paths. For she has cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is a way to hell, going down into the chambers of death. Nations have submitted themselves to the pontiff Christ and to his stratagems. But the scripture says that we're to believe on the only begotten Son of God and to have no fellowship with the evil works, the unfruitful works of darkness, rather to expose them. We have the judgment of this system already written and that is the great word of the Lord and the great consolation of the word that her judgment is already written on the pages of scripture quotation and a mighty angel took up a stone and a great millstone and cast it into the sea saying end or the final de demise of the evil one we have her who is exalted and high, brought low in God's word, in his depiction of who he is. In the word of God, we have also the final judgment. We're told in Revelation chapter um, uh, 15 and 4, we're told that he will bring all nations to himself and that he will judge the nations. We're told that he will do this and that it will be his work and that he will show forth who he is and that this will be his clear depiction of what is to come. We have to see what the Lord's word says and just how he brings all unto himself. The Lord has declared that he will judge. He will judge the nations. And his judgment will come upon this system. It is interesting that as he judges her, we're told in the word that all nations will come to him. And this is a theme in scripture, that the judgment of the great apostasy is also to be the bringing in of the nations. And so we are not to be despondent. We're not to think that God has ceased to be sovereign. We're not to think that God is somehow anxious about what is happening. Our God continues to be sovereign, and he has given his word that all nations will come and worship before him, and that he will bring in fearful judgments on the earth. And so we will expect that as he judges Rome, 
and her daughters that there will be a revival in which he will bring nations unto himself. We will know the Lord our God in his deeds. And we will see what Christ Jesus himself said at the end. The tares would be gathered out and burnt up and all would be with him in his kingdom. And it is to that Lord that we praise and exult as we finish tonight. The words of scripture who be in the image of his glory, the express image of his glory, the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high, and to him be praise, glory, worship, and honor, now and forevermore. Amen. Praise God. So we find that to be a intrinsically useful insight from Richard Bennett. And he is, of course, going to be one of the very few out there that can see how carefully placed the system of the Antichrist in Rome and the system of the false prophet in Mecca and in, in Islam, how carefully placed it is. And how there seems to be another massive system of the false prophet in Mormonism. And so I, I see a larger context in the, in the person of the, the second beast of Revelation, right? So, so the second beast, so this is for prophecy nerds out there who care about this kind of stuff. It seems evident to me that, of course, Islam comes up out of America and is a inherently nationalistic system so that Mormonism is in its very DNA an American died in the wool American system of geo geopolitical religiocultic exegesis out of their their doctrines right which are based on initiation r rituals built by Freemasons so they're they're highly interlocked highly closed societies very neighborly very pro-american a very Glenn Beck very useful academics for the CIA, right? And their scholarship and their family lines. Good people. But ultimately their system of erudition and their illumination, the light by which they have chosen to become their, the kernel of faith, right? Their extra biblical doctrines are ultimately don't align with the gospel of Jesus Christ any more than the, the papal system does or any more than the Islamic system does. So if, in my view, it has to account within the larger, vivid illustration of the scriptures. And, and so does China. Because if you go back in time, you didn't have a, before 1949, you didn't have a virulent, psychopathic, communist regi regime bent on totalitarian world domination with a hyper-advanced weaponry, hyper-state-of-the-art, cutting-edge technology, right? With a red dragon motif, right? That's new, but that, that goes all into the, the symbolism of the red dragon in Revelation, which before 1949, all these other theologians and prophetic teachers didn't weren't at placed at this point in history, which they could look at and see the evidence of the, the the signs of these times that we're in now. So we have to bring that, make that pertinent. But it, it's it's evident to me that this relationship between the Antichrist and the system of the false prophet is becoming more intricate and more sophisticated, and it shows you how the the narrative 
of the end time universal religious one world one world religion is going to go down.